You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Nathan Gilmore, and I'm Associate Professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I am joined online today by Dr. Michael Farmer. He's an Assistant Professor at Crown College. Michael, how are things? Good. It still feels weird to hear doctor before my name. It's been four years, but still, it's like, huh. They haven't taken that away yet? <laughs> <laughs> I, I always assume I'm going to get a phone call and mine's going to be taken away on a formatting issue. But um, <laughs> At any rate, listeners, uh, one person whose PhD is, is perfectly safe and free from jeopardy is Dr. David Grubbs. He's an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. Uh, David, how's Texas? Uh, Texas, Texas is good. I'm, you know, we're, we're having a good old time here. I get to talk right about on. the I get to talk talk about the old English wanderer poem in my Beowulf class today, so it's a happy day. That's pretty righteous. Well, at any rate, listeners, uh, lots going on in the uh, Christian Humanist Radio Network. Uh, we've had a a one year anniversary show for the City of Man podcast. Uh, made me realize that uh, the three of us really don't do anniversary shows so much. Although, if we stick around a, a bit more, we might be able to do a ten year anniversary show, which It'll blows be two my years mind from a little October. bit. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, indeed. Oh wow! We must be one of the longest-running, like theology-esque podcasts. Still I know active, that most yeah. of the ones that were around when we started are no longer around. So right, right, and that that was one of the weird, one of the many weird things about theology beer camp is that people were addressing me as a sort of elder statesman. <laughs> and I, <laughs> well, at Southeast Christianity and Lit last year, Danny kept introducing me as the godfather of Christian podcasting, which was <laughs> uncomfortable. Oh, that's wonderful. To say the that least, really is. Right? We, we, don't, we don't want, you know, Christ the Sinner coming at us with their, with their switchblades, you know, West Side Story style. Well, I finally, <laughs> just, uh, I finally just accepted it and started telling people that I invented the format. <laughs> nice, nice. And you learned to love the bomb? Right, That's right. right. <laughs> anyway, also on the network, uh, you know, I, I recently interviewed uh, Daniel Kirk. It stirred up some chatter on Facebook, and so uh, it looks like hopefully by the time this episode drops, I will have written a bit of a response on ChristianHumanist.org to some of that feedback. So cool. always enjoy conversation, and uh, especially from super listeners like Chen Boulay, So I haven't listened uh, to that episode yet, but you had to know that when when the premise of the book is uh, our Christology is too high, that you're going to raise the ire of the Presbyterians and our <laughs> listening audience. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. But uh, anything else on the network that we need to note, guys? 
Uh, I'm gonna be on the, <laughs> I'm gonna be on an episode of Sectarian Review coming up. We're gonna talk about the film Rashomon. Although I think I disappear for the last half hour of the episode. So mm. if you hate my voice but still want to hear Rashomon, just fast forward. There you go. <laughs> um, I think I've got a profiles coming out, and I know the Christian feminists are gearing up for recording about raising children. Um, but uh, I don't know when that's gonna drop. I just know that that is becoming a large part of our dinner table conversation. David, when are you and Katie finally going to start that podcast where you talk about how to raise weirdo children? The, 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 uh, oh gosh, I didn't, I don't know. We, we need a clever title first, I guess. Raising weirdo children with David and Katie. Grimes. Well, there, there, you, there you go. That was easy. Uh, I guess we have no reason not to start. There you go. Well, at any rate, listeners, uh, today our subject matter uh, is going to be a 1997 essay by Martha Nussbaum. Uh, thanks to Kristen Philippic for teaching me how to pronounce that properly. The essay is called The Narrative Imagination. And, Michael, normally we go to David for biography and context, but Nussbaum is a late modern American philosopher, so I'm going to ask you to do that work. Who is Nussbaum? And in 1997, when her book Cultivating Humanity joins the grand academic library what is her place in american thought and life i think it is probably fair to say or at least arguable that in 2017 she may be the most important american philosopher now i have a bias in that i don't really like analytic philosophy very much that is philosophy built around logic and science (laughs) <laughs> and so if 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 that's your brand of philosophy, you probably don't think as highly of Nussbaum as I do, because she is very much in that continental school. She's interdisciplinary, as you see from this essay. She loves literature. Um, she's actually a professor of law and philosophy at the University of Chicago. And, and she's best known as an ethicist, and as we see here, a defender of the value of the humanities. Um, her ethics are largely in the virtue ethics tradition. Uh, and she draws on a lot of ancient Greek and Roman texts, and especially Stoicism. And she wrote a book, I think a couple years ago, about Stoicism and human emotions. I think that may even have been the title of the book. She's also very interested in Judaism. Um, she converted to it as an adult, but she, she writes quite a bit about Judaism. And she's notable for a series of public feuds, um, with probably most famously with Robert P. George, the conservative. I think he's a constitutional law scholar at uh, Princeton. But also with John Rawls, with Judith Butler, with Noam Chomsky. Uh, and you'll notice that group contains both conservatives and liberals. And, and she, seems to, she seems to enjoy sparring with all sorts of people. And all sorts of people are periodically offended by her. And I'm sure if we read three or four of her books, we would find plenty to be offended by, too. Uh, so th- this, is, this is who she is. She's, she is uh, she's not concerned with with falling neatly into boxes, and I appreciate that about her. She is, uh, for, a, for an American philosopher, pretty amazingly prolific. She's had four books in the last five years, and that's not including like an Whoa. edited volume she did. Yeah, she, she's quite prolific, and she's a public intellectual to some degree. I don't know if you see her on CNN, but uh, they did a profile of her in The New Yorker uh, either earlier this year or last year, I can't remember, sometime recently. Cultivating Humanity is her second major book. So she, I, I don't know exactly what her position in the Academy was in 1997, but certainly this is one of the books that made her, uh, made her famous. I don't think mm-hmm. she was, I don't think she was philosophy famous going in, although her first book was well received. It was a book about, 
updating ancient Greece and Rome. I think I haven't read that book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't read her first book either. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I so should that... say I have not read a huge amount of work from Nussbaum, but everything I've read, I've really liked. I've heard many radio interviews with her, and I have liked, I have liked her every time I've heard her. I loved that New Yorker article. It was very interesting to hear what her day-to-day life is like. Uh, she works a lot. You'll be surprised to learn. Um, I, I, every, every time I learn something new about Martha Nussbaum, I like her more. So um, cool. I, I need to read more of her, and I'm glad you gave me the opportunity to here, Nathan. Very good. Uh, David, I, you mentioned in the pregame that this is the first uh, Nussbaum that you have read. Uh, were you familiar with her name at all, or is this a, a complete uh, novum? in Grubb's world. Yes. This is um, <laughs> literally first encounter. Uh, I, all, all of my opinions re, you know, Martha Nussbaum have been formed by this essay entirely. And so, um, you know, dear, dear, dear listeners, um, caveat emptor, or something like that, whatever. Caveat whatever you... lector. Uh, <laughs> Considering we talk about intellectual matters for an hour a week, uh, 40 weeks a year, Grubbs, I am always surprised to learn the difference in our field of contemporary knowledge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do, do you know what I mean? And that's not an insult to you because there's a lot of stuff you talk about that I've never heard of too. But like, it, it's weird to me to think that somebody had never heard of Martha Nussbaum before. I that's again that, not an insult that's, that's I, I, I don't mean that i don't mean that in a, in a, in a mean way at all no 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 i i I know, I know you don't i i i have so many gaps and uh this is one and well frankly, we all do right i mean part of the problem is that knowledge is forever expanding <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. well maybe and, at and, one and point it was possible to know everything but it gets harder and harder every day and I, right, I, right. I know we feel that we we do this function in a number of our listeners' lives, but I think it maybe we don't often say enough uh, the role that actually being part of this podcast plays in um, helping me fill out the gaps. I mean, there's so many things that I am I can have conversations about now for no other reason than that we did an episode on it. Yeah, right, I, right. I agree. And I have definitely, I, I've mentioned this before, but I've definitely stolen things you guys have said on the podcast and presented it as my own opinion in class. In fact, I did it just last <laughs> night. <laughs> nice. Yep. Well, and it's interesting, too. I mean, I, Grubbs, I remember a year, maybe a year and a half ago, uh, you read your first Hauerwas on my account. Yep. Uh, so I'll, I'll be interested to hear, uh, you know, if I picked a good one for your first nuss bomb. Excellent. <laughs> Well, David, I mean, let's go ahead and talk a bit about that. Um, <laughs> tell our listeners for a little bit what Nussbaum means when she says that morality happens within narratives. Uh, and if you're so inclined, talk as well about where her ethical claims overlap with Hauerwas's or McIntyre's or with other 20th century writers. Mm-hmm. The morality in a narrative she locates in the the possibilities that narrative has uh especially fiction for helping us to imaginatively inhabit the perspective of someone who is very different from us uh it's it's that uh that possibility of reaching beyond our own experience our own frame of reference our own 
time and place and class and mores and gender and race and so forth and so on. Uh, it's it's that feature of narrative that uh, that is the moral feature, and it's moral in this way uh, because when we are able to uh, imaginatively inhabit a different perspective, that is going to enlighten, um, that is going to guide uh, the way that we imagine relationship with those people who have that perspective. Uh, we, we, we will be less inclined to, um, to treat them as monsters, to treat them as objects, to treat them as one-dimensional. Um, we will be more inclined to... Uh, to see them sympathetically, to see to to see them compassionately, and so that notion of compassion, that notion of feeling with, right, of of you know the passio, um, life is so much about undergoing passio, undergoing suffering, um, those things that happen to you, and being able to undergo the passio of others, um, compassion uh, is in this essay, it seems to me, the basis of moral of of proper moral thinking um ways it intersects with with Hauerwas. i know Hauerwas less well um you know every single bit of Hauerwas i've ever read <laughs> um however i have gathered from you that one of the things that Hauerwas is interested in is the importance of the representation of multiple voices in a narrative of narratives not being resolved down to a single um, monologuing univocal perspective um, the polyphony polyphony in a narrative is uh, as I understand it something that's important in Hauerwas yes mm -hmm. okay yeah All right. yeah keep am rolling I, am I on the right track okay huzzah yeah keep rolling man okay so <laughs> it's it's that it's that possibility of other voices um, that uh, would link Stan Hauerwas with uh, Nussbaum in this particular essay, they're they're seeing the same kind of thing as important. The fact that we can um, read and hear, and in some sense even inhabit a voice different from our own, um, is uh, a big chunk of the importance of narrative. In terms of uh, McIntyre, it's uh, the notion of of narrative, like other exercises in life, um, having this possibility of of uh, forming a, a moral habitus within us of uh, the ways that our experiences can formatively shape our character in good ways and narrative is a kind of artistic experience that can form us in particular ways so the virtue ethics um, side of it so that uh, narrative engaging with literary narrative reading a novel um, can be an exercise in developing a kind of virtue and the particular virtue she's most interested in in this is is uh, is compassion, mm -hmm. and it made me think about um, the "This Is Water" episode that we did with Danny um, on the David Foster Wallace speech, um, because that's I mean that's basically the thesis of his whole speech: um, the ability to imaginatively um, connect to the subjective experience of another person is is in that is in that text as well. Um, the foundation for a moral engagement with other people. Whew. So what in this 20th century am I leaving out? Because you, <laughs> almost everything in the late 20th century that I know about, I've 
gotten because you guys made me read it. <laughs> Michael, do you want to take first swing at it? Yeah, I just last night I taught this essay by Gabriel Marcel called The Finality of the Drama, where, where he says, to, to be good, drama involves a kenosis, a self-emptying, hmm. on the part of the playwright, which then allows the audience to find themselves in the drama because the characters don't speak for the author, they speak as themselves. So the, the, uh, the, the spectator sees herself in the characters and then is elevated above herself by the play, by the existence of the other characters, and thus learns compassion. So I, I, I thought it was very fortuitous that I was reading Marcel at the same time I was reading Nussbaum. Um, I would also point out, um, she, she, she says we learn to do this from, from when we're children. This is, this is why it's so important to tell children stories. Mm-hmm. But what children bump into is the realization that real human beings are much more opaque than, than the characters and stories are. And, and mm-hmm. rather, than, rather than making us see human beings as faulty characters and stories, which I think probably happens more than she would like to think, um, she, she says instead that this um let's see i have the quote here um the uh it thus defines the other person as spacious and deep with qualitative differences from oneself and hidden places worthy of respect so because we can mostly understand a character backwards and forth and we can't understand human beings quite that easily we are driven to respect them for their opaqueness Mm. Um, because mm-hmm. we love the characters, and so we must love them even more. And again, I think that must sometimes be true, and ideally that's true. But other times, I think it must be that we 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 oversimplify other people on the basis of the stories we've read. So, mm-hmm. in, in other words, if if fiction can do this wonderful thing for us, we have to we have to admit it can also be destructive. If mm-hmm. you're re- if you're reading the sorts of stories that oversimplify. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. takes me back to Marcel because the the whole point of the essay, uh, the finality of drama, is that political plays kind of suck uh, <laughs> because the author doesn't empty himself. The author the author just yells at you. Uh, so he's he's complaining about Bertolt Brecht in particular and Sartre. I, I had a hunch that name would come up. Yeah. So so the, according to Marcel, anyway, it's very difficult to have empathy in a play that is essentially an author tract. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. One of my students brought up The West Wing, or, or to which I would add any Aaron Sorkin show, because it's an author tract. I, I sus- and The West Wing less than something like The Newsroom. Uh, it, it, can be difficult to, it can be difficult to learn empathy from something that is preaching at you. This, mm-hmm. works, this works by indirection rather mm-hmm. than by direction. And see, that's interesting. I, I One of the things that I actually still enjoy about West Wing is that every once in a while you'll get a right-wing character who will have a chance to discourse. And there are places, and I, there are places where he falls to the temptation to refute them through the mouth of another character. But there are places in that series where the right-wing character gets to have the last word. Mm-hmm. And it I just have kinda, not watched much West Wing, but okay. the newsroom which is his most recent series, certainly uh-huh. does not do that. Okay, all right, all right, all right. I, uh, and again, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to hold up, you know, the West Wing as, you know, the, the paragon of dramatic literature, mm-hmm. but I will say at least that much nice about it. Well, it, it is ironic that it sounds as if um, 
newsroom and West Wing might actually be more useful for um, a Nussbaum-style engagement for right-wing conservatives who want to get inside the heads of their, um, you know, political opposites. Oh, I yeah. think that's true. Yeah, it all depends on where you're standing. Right, but mm-hmm. but they aren't the people who are going to watch it. Instead, it's going to be, you know, the 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 mega fans are going to be the people who identify with those characters, and so right, the people who are going to vote Democrat anyway, whose yeah. views are being reinforced. Yeah, yeah, and mm-hmm. I, I think Nussbaum would have something to say about that. I mean, she does, mm-hmm. in fact, have something to say about that, which I right, know we'll get right. to in a few minutes. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think another thing that makes uh, this essay a nice, uh, I guess, a nice counterpart to McIntyre and Hauerwas is that the emphasis is on stories told about aliens, told mm-hmm. about others, mm-hmm. uh, whereas you know McIntyre's emphasis on on narrative tends to be situating oneself in a narrative and therefore finding the intelligibility of one's own actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this essay raises the possibility and in fact the ethical good of familiarizing yourself with narratives uh, that are not your own, uh, where mm-hmm. things have significance that perhaps wouldn't occur to you unless you saw it in the context of this complex narrative. Mm-hmm. And where, you know, I, I, you know, the point that Michael brings up is a valid one to be sure, that if we if we limit ourselves to only looking at our favorite stories, uh, then real people are going to be uh, really quite frustrating by comparison. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if the story is telling some truth about people who normally would be, and I'm going to use a phrase that one of you used, and I can't even remember five minutes ago who used it, <laughs> defective characters in our own story, but then they become the protagonist in their own, Mm-hmm. and I, the reader, become the defective character in that other person's story, that opens up a depth and a complexity of ethical reflection that might not have been there before. Hmm. It's well, always helpful rate, to learn that you're not Hamlet in every story. Absolutely, yeah. So, that's a good way to put it. Sometimes you're a footman. Nor were yeah, meant yeah. to be. And I'm an attendant <laughs> lord. <laughs> I wondered who would sometimes put Sometimes even first. indeed the fool. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And the answer is not me. All right. So, Michael, I I do want to move on to one of the points that has stuck with me uh, and really kind of generates some good conversation when I teach this text to literary theory classes. And that is that a text that is offensive might be doing harm by being offensive, or it might be clearing the way for something good to happen by being offensive. So... Talk about that idea a little bit, Michael. Praise it or protest it. Uh, and I mean, what texts have you taught or have you encountered that do some ethical work for good or bad by being offensive? Hmm. Mostly I would agree that there is a, a positive quality to certain sorts of offensiveness uh, where where the offense that is being taken, I, I don't know how to put this, exists in the person taking offense rather than in the text. You know what I mean? It's not exactly seeking to offend, but it's seeking to tell the truth. And mm-hmm. we're resistant to the truth, and it breaks that resistance down. Mm-hmm. Um, what she says is that empathy has to be difficult if it's worth anything. 
It, mm-hmm. it has to it has to make a certain challenge to our conventional values. And again, what what counts as conventional values is going to depend on who you are. So, what challenges one person's conventional values is not going to be what challenges other people's. She says, however, offensiveness is not at all not all by itself a sign of literary merit, but the offensiveness of a work may be part of its civic value. So, it's again, it's a certain sort of offensiveness. Her mm-hmm. example, and and this is one I have taught, and that I agree works the way she says it does, is. Richard Wright's native son, uh, the the protagonist of that novel, Bigger Thomas, is deeply unpleasant. He's very, very difficult to love. Um, he's terrifying for white people, but also he plays into some very, very negative stereotypes of black people, um, such that I think if I were an African-American reading that novel, I would be just as uncomfortable as I am reading it as a white person. For the first half of the book, though, Wright holds your head still, and he makes you he makes you feel for this guy. Um, the last half of the book is this very long courtroom scene that is essentially an author tract for communism. So I would say at the first <laughs> half of the book, at the first half of the book, he's doing what Gabriel Marcel wants him to do, and in the last half, he turns into Bertolt Brecht. Um, I don't really know anyone who who really likes the last half of Native Son, but the first half first half does exactly what she says it does. It's offensive. Um, but its offense makes you look at something you otherwise would be disinclined to look at, and that's very important. Mm. One question I did have is who should be offended, because Nussbaum approves of Wayne C. Booth's disapproval of Francois (laughs) Rabelais um, Mm -hmm. for his attitude toward women. Now, I have read maybe 10 pages of Rabelais, and that was 15 years ago. So I'm not defending Rabelais here exactly, but why is that brand of offensiveness destructive, whereas rights is constructive? And I, I... Maybe I got toward that at the beginning, which is that it needs to be pointing towards some sort of truth. But there, too, the the question is, whose truth? So I, I, I worry that if we make offense a virtue, we're only, we're only making it a virtue in one particular political direction. Mm-hmm. And I, I just want to make sure that when we're talking about offensiveness, we're not just talking about offending the right sort of person. Right. Well, and that's where McIntyre becomes a nice companion to Nussbaum, Right. Uh, you know, just the reminder that to praise or to blame is inherently to situate something in a certain kind of narrative. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm very interested. Um, you know, Dave Chappelle just put out two specials on Netflix. I haven't watched them. But I haven't gotten around to them yet either. The the glory of Dave Chappelle in his in his at, at his peak was how offensive he was. Right. That that he just did not care about anybody's sensibilities and he was going to say the world as he saw it um, at, at any cost. And, and I mean, that's what makes Chappelle's show so funny is he's willing to do that in, in so, so blatantly. Um, but the same people who would have said that in 2004 when he was mostly offending conservative white people are now very mad at him because he's making jokes about trans people. And it's very interesting to me because either either that sort of that sort of say it at every cost is a virtue or it's not, mm-hmm. and, and and you don't get to say well it's bad now because he's talking about something I care about. But mm-hmm. the people who well, were sure offended, you can. I've seen it done. But the people who were offended in two thousand four <laughs> need to get over themselves. They need to develop yeah. a sense of humor. Yeah, you, you cannot do it with a sense of internal consistency without some kind of additional argument. Is that will that work? <laughs> Or right. a good shot of amnesia. <laughs> yeah. Well, it helps. It's been fifteen years, ten years, twelve years. Yes. Yes. 
And again, I'm not defending anything he says in those specials because I haven't watched them. But I, I was annoyed. I listened to a, a, a podcast about them, and I was I was annoyed at the kind of pearl clutching on on, on the the part of the liberal commentators. When, when again, if if it was conservatives clutching their pearls in 2004, 2005, they would have just mocked them relentlessly. Mm-hmm. Sure, well, they would. Well, but you have to offend. I mean, the right sort of people deserve to be offended. You know, and the wrongs, and you know, and the other sort of people. Um, they are the moral conscience of the universe, and how dare you? I think it's very important that Nussbaum does not say that, and I think you could, I think you <laughs> can take what she says here and make it say that, but she mm-hmm. doesn't. I think she really leaves open the notion that that everybody should be, everybody should be open to being offended, and 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 that's why I think Native Son is such a. Have you guys read that novel? Mm-mm. No, I have not. It's again the first half of it is just amazing because of because of how unpleasant he is, how many levels he offends our sensibilities and everybody's sensibilities. I don't think there's a person in the world who could read Native Son and not be horrified. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, David, you and I t- tend to teach older books than Michael does. I mean, are there any old books that are offensive in this way that Nussbaum praises that come to Probably. your mind immediately? Well, I mean, you know. Like like Michael just said, Rabelais. Um, oh, Candide. Um, oh my gosh, yeah, Candide. Ooh. Um, Ooh. The more scurrilous and scatological stuff in Canterbury Tales. Mm-hmm. Ditto Decameron. Um, Ariosto's Orlando Furioso has some pretty hard to read bits in it. Um, the Inferno. Inferno. Think about all the sorts of people who are condemned to hell there and what that does to our right. modern sensibilities. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, Rabelais might be the author of the grotesque, but he certainly didn't invent that. <laughs> um, so, I mean, such such things such things exist. Um, mm-hmm. Marlowe, right? Um, Marlowe's definitely poking... You know, he, he's all about tipping sacred cows. Um uh, even oh yeah 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 I mean dear heavens Jew of Malta I mean yeah. that <laughs> that if 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 anyone owns a string of pearls to clutch that play will get them clutching it yeah uh, Titus Andronicus right mm. um so I mean yeah I mean such such things such such things exist um typically we contain them by giving all of this kind of period stuff and and sort of yeah um sort of sort of sagely intoning that it was a different time back then um <laughs> though this stuff was often as shocking if not more so back then so you still have to deal with that move of the artist intentionally you know wanting its audi- wanting the the audience to clutch the pearls mm-hmm. um I, I really am not going to feel good about this conversation if we don't come up with some way to differentiate between public enemy and the butthole surfers you know what i mean <laughs> between between creative offensiveness and just uh just offensiveness maybe the better comparison would be uh, public enemy and two live crew mm-hmm. like there's nothing redeeming about true live crew or two live crew they're they're not they're not doing it in order to point at something higher they're just they, they just want to offend you whereas right public although enemy, they although they will claim to be pointing at something higher precisely to cash in on that impulse mm-hmm. yeah so I, I think I think at some point somebody's got to come up with a way of 
judging between these two things that is, if not objective, less subjective, intersubjective, mm-hmm. maybe. Well, I, I think, I really do think, uh, and I mean, Danny Anderson, I mean, is going to have his chips stacked an inch and a half high on his Christian humanist bingo card this episode, but I really do <laughs> think that McIntyre's insistence that all of our actions are situated within a narrative really becomes helpful here. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, I mean, if you're... And, and, Michael, you and I talked about this a few years ago with the uh, the attack on the, the Charlie Hebdo mm-hmm. uh, magazine, right? Uh, you know, I, I said, you know, there is no narrative that I can conceive of in which the cartoonists at Charlie Hebdo are heroes. I can say that the, you know, the, the police officers who protect them might be because they're actually protecting free speech in spite of the fact that these guys are idiots. Mm-hmm. But the idiots themselves are not the heroes here. And you made the argument, and I still don't agree with you, but I, I think it's worth <laughs> repeating the argument that uh, within a sort of a certain cast of the French Revolution that is strongly anti-clerical, precisely that sort of anti-Muslim humor is heroic. Yeah, I, w- I would say I would say if you're outside the narrative... You mm-hmm. can say they're courageous. I, I mean, there is something I, I think are maybe brave is a better word. Okay, but because they are they are risking their lives for something they think is valuable. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. But but I would agree that if you don't think what they're doing is valuable, if you don't agree with the narrative they've set up or the narrative they've bought into, mm-hmm. it, it's going to be difficult to call them heroes. You you could mm-hmm. you could you could call them brave, but maybe you couldn't call them courageous. Maybe courageous is too too much of a virtue word, and virtue mm-hmm. only makes sense within a given narrative. Right. And you have to be in a certain kind of narrative, right? I mean, this is why the disagreement over political candidates is so ferocious, uh, because, I mean, people's narratives of what makes a good statesman just differ so wildly. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, David, I just cut you off. I apologize. Oh, I don't even remember what I would have been saying. <laughs> all right, all right. So, uh, once again, I'm the jerk here. Um. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. I, just, just, you know, kind of to dive in there, though, um, uh-huh. you know, the, there, there is a kind of reactionary or, I, I don't know what you would call it, uh, politically engaged art that seems to see off- offending a certain kind of person as its whole end Mm-hmm. as the end of the art and it's not as if the art is good is is in some way good art but also offensive like the, like the offensiveness is the art right, right. yeah and um, I, well, I think you're back to brecht there right, right. maybe maybe marcel gives you a way mm-hmm. out but that's almost um to to me that almost seems doomed to fail because that precise effect is is itself it itself seems to be the only goal and redeeming qual and 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 redeeming purpose of the object itself you know and mm-hmm. a, a a terrible story crappily told that is also offensive <laughs> is not going to be good art just because it's offensive mm-hmm. but then the criteria for good art are themselves situated in a narrative right Oh, that I mean, so, I yeah, mean, that's a fair point. Yeah, so I mean, I, I I'm not trying to be the relativist here, but I am trying to <laughs> just keep bringing us back to the fact that if you can't convince someone that this is bad art, mm-hmm. it has to do at least somewhat with 
the narrative in which they find themselves. Mm-hmm. And part of convincing them that it is bad art is inviting them into a larger narrative mm-hmm. in which bad art is a valid category. And the way you do that is by showing them good art, right? You mm-hmm. show them something convincing. Uh-huh. Well, maybe this is one of the places where Nussbaum can be helpful because mm-hmm. art that is aimed simply at offensive, at simply at offending, um, only arouses the applause of those who already think those you're trying to offend should be offended, and it's about as inviting as as getting screamed in the face, right? Um, yeah. You know, N- Nussbaum seems to say that the the way that this narrative, even the offensive narrative, accomplishes it is by presenting the invitation to consider the thing that you would normally be incredibly offended by, but nonetheless you are, in some sense, welcomed into it. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it still hurts, but you are invited You are invited in. It's not a scream in the face. Yeah. Um, Candide and, really walks that line, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, in one recent novel that uh, didn't get real good reviews, but I think exhibits this pretty nicely, uh, is Tom Wolfe's I Am Charlotte Simmons. You were the only person I know who likes that book as much as you do. I, and and me and Jamie Smith, oddly enough. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, But, I mean, what really makes that novel memorable uh, is that he so skillfully sets up these characters that are just utterly vile. Uh, and then when your guard is down and you're pretty sure you've got them handled, you know what to do with them. Mm-hmm. They do something that is consistent with their character, but which is nonetheless genuinely good. Hmm. And I mean, that just throws your equilibrium off for 50 pages. Uh, and then they keep they go back to doing vile stuff again, but now they're more complicated. Hmm. And so, I mean, you know, I, I again, Michael, I, I know that I'm, I'm disagreeing with the critical consensus here on that novel. I, uh, I've not read it, so I can't uh, I can't speak to it. But that book got terrible reviews. I know it did, and I read it anyway, and I really enjoyed it. So, actually, no, I didn't really enjoy it. It actually made me sick to my stomach for probably four hundred of its six hundred pages. But it was a it was an ethically challenging nausea. <laughs> I mean, and I guess that's what she's she's looking for. Yeah, ethically, yeah. ethically challenging nausea. Yeah. <laughs> well, at any rate, David, I, I want to turn again. Late in this essay, Nussbaum criticizes identity politics, not as a different set of texts that come to populate general education syllabi, because after all, she seems to be in favor of revisiting our reading lists. But she talks about identity politics as a certain disposition towards literary texts. So for Nussbaum, what makes it for a better political reading of a literary text and a worse political reading of a literary text? Well, it seems as if she is in that um, kind of classical liberalism camp in which uh, the political, uh, the, the, the sort of guiding political sense is that of empathy and compassion. And empathy and compassion work by means of identification. Uh, so that the better reading of the po- uh, the blood- the better political reading of a text is the one in which um, you uh, you identify with the person very different from you. You are able to, uh, in in some sense, understand their experience, 
uh, have sympathy with their understanding, have empathy with their perspective, um, and and in that sense, you know, become a more compassionate and therefore more po- more moral political being, um, a more moral being in in the society of people. All right, um, the idea that she pushes back against, which she identifies uh, as, by the term identity um, politics, is is the is the notion that these different perspectives are in some sense closed off, sealed off from each other. Uh, the whole time I was reading that particular chunk of the essay, I kept thinking of um, uh, the the song "Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen," um, <laughs> and you know, imagine where each where each demographic is sort of simultaneously singing at each other. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Uh, so that the this this other this very different other person, there that other subjectivity cannot be inhabited, um, even imaginatively, uh, and that's so so that only someone with uh, who is in that kind of identity space um, can present it artistically, and even those. Uh, and 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 even then, those who are not from that particular identity space um, can't rightly engage with it, even artistically. Um, so that you know, not only um, you know, if I were a white novelist man, not only would it um, be in some sense inappropriate for me to write from uh, uh, write uh, a a protagonist with a a female perspective, not only would I do it wrong. Um, inevitably, and it would, uh, but I'll, also I, as a male, reading a novel by a woman from a woman's perspective, um, would inevitably also get it wrong. Um, but if you were a white male novelist and all your protagonists were white male, that would also be a problem. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so that that kind of. Uh, all of these perspectives are sealed off from each other. Um, there is no possibility for empathy because all of us, um, you know, all of us are living in these kind of sealed off, these sealed off identities. No one can really understand my experience. This experience um, seems to be the things that she's pointing back against, pushing back against in identity identity politics. It seems as if, um, and this is a place probably where you guys can educate me, it seems as if the the notion that I've heard heard so much about lately of, of uh, intersectionality seems to be an attempt to bridge that problem in identity politics so that um, folks of different kind of minority or um, uh, border identities, um, the, the, those who, who feel themselves in some sense out of, um, the majority or the mainstream or the dominant group, um, that they would be able to find connection with each other. I Uh, think that is originally what intersectionality meant, uh but what you see it increasingly meaning is, I belong to these three minority groups, thus um, nobody from any other group and nobody from any of those groups who doesn't also share the intersected identity um, 
can speak to me about my experience. Okay. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So because yeah, I don't, don't you think Nathan that, that yeah, that's I mean, how that's typically used now? Right. Well, sometimes to be sure, and I mean that's where the the term of I, I would call it mockery, uh, the oppression Olympics comes forth. Mm-hmm. Right. That is uh, definitely know, a term of mockery. Yeah. 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 Um, where you know. Uh, it's making fun of people for, like Michael said, you know, claiming that I have, uh, you know, six marginal group bullets and you only have five, so therefore you can't tell me anything. Uh-huh. Well, how come? How come your book talking about female oppression doesn't say anything about uh, le- lesbian transracial Eskimos who are in wheelchairs? <laughs> you know, you get these, yeah. you get, you get these tiny combinations of. Of minority groups, yeah, and I don't, I don't mean to, I, I don't, I don't mean to like exclude anybody, but <laughs> when you're defining yourself, yeah, almost exclusively by your membership in minority groups, and what matters is the smallest possible mm-hmm. intersection of minority groups you can get into. I, I don't see how we can share enough of a narrative to have a conversation about ethics. Yeah. And so what mm-hmm. it what it devolves into is people screaming at each other, empathize with me, empathize with me, empathize with me, while simultaneously denying that any such empathy can happen. Mm-hmm. Does it not also seem to function as a way of saying all of you folks from any of these groups cannot take a position that would work inimically to the progressive orthodoxy for all of these groups because that would be betrayal? Right, well, yeah, you look at what happened to Chimamanda Ch- Ngozi Adichie, who, who was for several years a, a real feminist role model. And she's a wonder. I don't know if you guys have read her, but she's a wonderful Nigerian author. Um, but she said a few months ago that trans women do not have the same experience as um, non-trans women, I guess. Cis women, is that what you're supposed to say? Um, and oh man the internet just turned on her so she mm-hmm. has the right the, the quote unquote right opinion on all these other issues and mm-hmm. yet because she has the wrong opinion on this one she is insufficiently progressive mm-hmm. yeah so it, so it, it seems to function it like it was meant to bridge this kind of gap but then it's used in these in these other kinds of ways that then work even against that possibility well, I mean, in the beginning, that's what intersectionality was. So if you if you look at, like, the work of Gloria Anzaldúa, mm-hmm. she wrote a book called, uh, I can't remember which, if the English comes first or the Spanish, but uh, Borderlands slash La Frontera. Mm-hmm. That is all about, that is all about people, about women, Latina, Latina women, um, and, and often queer Latina women, who because of that position feel homeless in all these communities, but have a particular power to bridge those gaps. And that's what she's, that's what she's pushing toward. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I get less a sense of pushing toward bridging gaps in the last five years or so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, and, and, and part I'm of a white it is man, because so. in a, and I know I'm always flogging social media, but in a social media atmosphere where things can start to turn against you, but you can shut it down by invoking intersectionality or any of these other terms, I, honestly, I think that you know, even in in '97 when no one knew outside of Harvard what the heck a Facebook was, I, I think that Nussbaum here is anticipating some of those phenomena. Hmm. I would say I, I I think what she says here is a very good rule of thumb. 
that the solution to identity politics is not to return to monoculture, but it's a mm-hmm. it's a genuine multiculturalism where we listen to each other instead of demanding that other people listen to mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Well, and and she also, while you know, she she doesn't she doesn't push it too far, and, and she keeps wanting to say that this kind of empathy doesn't mean really under our skin we're all the same. She wants to step back from that. That's that's not what right. It means. Yeah, because em- empathy demands difference. Yeah, that, that, right. that, that that's not what it means because because if that's what it means, then difference is um, difference is only cosmetic. Mm-hmm. Um, right, so genuine difference, but not incommensurable difference. Right, I, that seems to be what she's pushing towards. Right, that that, that mm-hmm. there is, that there is such a thing as a as a as a humanity that we share, but that doesn't mean that the way forward is to peel aside everything but that whatever that mere humanity is. Um. Because the 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 differences, including the differences of experience, um, are actually important parts of uh, these individual people. Mm-hmm. Anyway, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, Michael, I want you to comment on one of my favorite uh, sort of half sentences from the essay. "Quote: The people of the United States need the arts precisely because they will be called upon to vote." Close quote. Hmm. Uh, Nussbaum doesn't claim that that this thought is her own, uh, but it's got kind of a Hauerwasian feel to it, so I kind of dig it. Um, <laughs> how do literature and civic life connect for Nussbaum, and what do you make of her argument? Well, politics is a branch of ethics, right? That, that goes all the way back to Aristotle. So if ethics is built on empathy, politics must also be built on empathy. She is clearly committed to democracy. She doesn't make a defense of democracy here, but like that's clearly her starting point. Democracy is a good thing. We should be more democratic. So we have to spread our empathy as wide as we possibly can, and we do so in democratic directions, which means toward the unrepresented, toward, toward people who have traditionally not had voices, the marginal. Literature, then, can teach us to understand people whom we wouldn't normally see or whom we would normally fear, and then we can perhaps vote in such a way that takes their interests into account. Hmm. I think people have largely gotten this message. Uh, social issues are generally argued for using emotional narrative examples rather than logical ones. And I'll give you two examples on, um, on, the, on, on opposite sides of the same issue. In 2008, when they were trying to overturn Prop 8, or when I think when Prop 8 was being voted on mm-hmm. in California... Um, they they trotted out a, le- a elderly lesbian couple who'd been together for 40 years and who had just gotten married. And, and well, you don't want to take their relationship away from them, do you? Which is interesting because it's not an argument about gay marriage. It's an argument about these particular people who serve as a kind of, I don't know, stand-in for an argument. Uh, not that conservatives are much better because arguments for religious liberty are made using very similar emotional appeals to Christian bakers who have been driven out of business. So in, in both of those cases, the narrative is attempting to develop empathy, but I would argue sometimes at the expense of any kind of law-based argument, and also, I suspect, mostly in people who already agree. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I, Nussbaum is probably not arguing against logical reasoning. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, maybe the danger of narrative proves the power and importance of narrative, and we just have to make sure we're using it responsibly and in addition to other forms of thought. 
Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that both sides use it doesn't necessarily make the thing itself illegitimate, but it does mean that you need you need you need something else. Mm-hmm. And the, the fact that somebody is hurt by a law does not mean that the law should be repealed. Uh huh. Somebody's hurt by everything we do. Right. You know? Right. But it also doesn't mean that the hurt isn't real if the move is still right. And that, that I think, is something that both sides don't reckon with enough. Um, I, I, both sides, I th- uh, in, in the worst iterations, I think, come down to, um, you know, when the other says, oh, but this thing that you're going to do, that th- that's going to hurt me. Uh, the other side's, uh, you know, often worst instinct is to say, yeah, well, screw you. You kind of deserve it because you're a terrible person. Sing it with me, boys and girls. Life is guilt. <laughs> right. So Everything hurts someone, which doesn't mean, mm-hmm. doesn't mean you don't have to re-examine your actions, but if you decide not to change your actions, it doesn't, it doesn't mean those people aren't hurt. Mm-hmm. So those examples are valid, and they're, they're worthwhile, and they're mm-hmm. even necessary, but they don't actually prove anything. Yeah. Side uh, side note, it's one of the reasons why I like um, the theologian Wesley Hill, um, who is a uh, a. And this is the this is the, he calls himself a celibate gay Christian, um, and one of the things that he continually emphasizes, uh, he believes that um, what he is attracted to sexually is something that he ought not do. Um, as a Christian, and therefore he is celibate. Um, but one of the things that he continually draws um, attention to uh, in on his blog and other kinds of writings is the fact that that hurts and it's painful, and the fact that he feels like he's doing the right thing doesn't make it um, doesn't make it easy, and that um, and that that's something that's um, conservative Christians who take uh, who take kind of the the traditionalist positions on those matters um, need to consider real people hurt um, mm. ev- even when they are convinced they're making the right choices so agreed yeah the the experience of those elderly lesbians is real yes and the experience of those Christian bakers is real and that should perhaps be part of our decision making process yes not mm. not all, but can't be ignored. Right. Well, and I mean, that's where, again, the most ardent partisans mm-hmm. often start to sound like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. <laughs> uh, that, you know, if indeed you are suffering, it must be because you've done something to deserve it. Mm-hmm. And that ain't always the case. I, I know Michael wants to keep saying life is guilt, but I mean, there's a, there's also <laughs> uh, different kinds of guilt, and there's different magnitudes of guilt. Right. And, oh, I agree. You know, I agree. Um, and you know, there are lesser uh, evils. <laughs> so I mean, you know, this is. Yeah, I mean, I think you guys have put your finger on. I mean, what she's after here that the political life is necessarily going to be complex Mm -hmm. and that if you are at the very least exposing yourself to some of that complexity in narrative, 
uh, you'll be a bit more prepared for the emotional claim or the emotional appeals that come out in press appearances, political ads, so on and so forth. But David, I want to make the Christian humanist turn here and take Nussbaum's argument into the realm that her essay doesn't treat, although the collection does have an essay on religious colleges, and that's the life of the church. So to what extent does her argument work and to what extent does it flounder when we make the sidestep and say that people of the church need the arts precisely because they will be called upon to judge angels? Hmm. Well, you already made the reference to Hauerwas earlier on, and while um, I am not a Hauerwasian in all of the ways one could be a Hauerwasian, uh, <laughs> on the particular note that he and Nussbaum sound, uh, it is important to give the, the different voices in the scripture uh, their own integrity, uh, that it is important the 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 insight uh, of this particular essay uh, can guide us to be good bible readers uh, and to value the fact that our scripture does not consist solely of a monologue from our god telling us things he thinks um but actually includes far more often the fallible situated thoughts words acts of the human beings that God has worked with, lived with, worked through, worked against uh, in his long story of sacred history. Uh, and so reading the Bible in this way, um, including the narrative points, uh, I think, can help us be more attuned to what the Bible, I think, is doing morally. Um, so, good. Um, we really do need to hear Job, right? Mm -hmm. um, and not immediately try to contain Job's voice. Um, we need to let the rawness of Job there. But we also need to, in some sense, inhabit his friends and realize the fact that this is actually painful for them too, and one of the things that they're attempting to do is make sense of the mystery they see before them. And that's that's a real human thing. We might, we might end up, and I think should end up, condemning them the way God does at the end, saying, you have not judged me or my servant Job rightly. Nonetheless, there is a kind of empathy, a kind of compassion that you can have for those friends that sometimes that's what happens to you. You're the person who is looking at someone else's pain and someone else's situation and feeling woefully inadequate to deal with, with what's going on there, clutching at conceptions um, to make sense of it, and sometimes, mm -hmm. and sometimes choosing wrongly and not knowing that till later. Um, that's worth knowing. That's worth inhabiting. Something that I don't get in this essay that I would like to see, uh, and I think Christians need to see, is more agency in people. By by putting all of her eggs in the compassion basket, um, at, at one point she talks about how, um, and this, I don't think this is a direct quote, but basically she says something on the lines of, you know, 
everything is forgivable once you've seen that other person's perspective. You can't be to know all is to forgive all. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So. 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 She, okay. So she does. Say she that. doesn't say that. That's that's Tolstoy, I think. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But she seems to have that perspective that if 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 only you knew this per if if you only knew what this person had been through, you would, you would, you would forgive, and. And that approach seems to, in some sense, drain people of moral agency. All of their choices are, seem simply to be the results of the situation they're in, and even their bad, harmful actions, decisions, etc., um, are, are kinds of extensions of their victimhood. Yeah, you're not talking about forgiveness, right? You're yeah. talking about not thinking they did anything wrong. Mm. Yeah. Forgiveness requires you to say, "I I was wrong." Right. You know, remove remove my guilt for being wrong. Right. So mm-hmm. the fact that she that she that that's the kind of move that she keeps making, I don't think Christians. I I don't think that can be enough for Christians. Um. It is. I mean, that kind of empathy that she calls us to, and compassion she calls us to. Um. I would say, yeah, we need that. But we need to be able to say something else. Um, and I would say that uh, she cites Sophocles towards the beginning of her essay. And I thought it was really interesting that the Sophocles um, that she chose uh, was uh, Philoctetes, one that I'm not mm-hmm. super familiar with. And she, Same she, one McIntyre chooses in After Virtue. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, she focuses on that. And she talks about Aristotle and how, you know, we need to be empathizing with the person and uh, with this tragic hero. And she doesn't choose Crayon and Antigone. Mm-hmm. Who, I'm pretty dang sure, Sophocles doesn't want us to just sort of inhabit Crayon and forgive all because we now understand. Crayon has, I think, we're meant to see in Sophocles genuinely evil dispositions for which he is rightly judged. Um, The destruction that happens is his responsibility, and him realizing that is him realizing a true thing. Um, And I don't see this essay equipping us to do that. Am I being... Am I being too mean? Do I need to... Do I need to (laughs) mitigate that? Is there something I need to understand so that I can forgive? (laughs) Well, I'll go ahead and take a stab at that. I mean, I think that what Nussbaum is getting at here is part of an ethical process. I don't know if she intends to make it the totality, but I, I see your point now, David. I, I actually hadn't thought about it from this angle, that if you do take compassion to be the totality of what's going on, then you can run into those excesses mm-hmm. to be sure. Uh, I, I would say at the very least uh, that when we make decisions as a group, as an organization, uh, as a you know collective rather than individual, our tendency, uh, and I think you know social psychology bears this out, is to elevate the expedient and the rule governed at the expense of compassion. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know in a specifically political context, that makes a good deal of sense. I would say also, if we think about some of the darker moments in church life 
there could probably be some benefit that comes from this too, as long as we don't take it as the totality, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, to to say uh, simply that you know because this person is um, in this particular sin, therefore we expel them. Full stop. End of story. I think could use some more complexity injected into there. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, yeah, I mean, you know, now now that you've brought that up. I think that you're right that it, that can't be it, mm-hmm. but I think it, it should be part of it. Yeah, Michael, does that distinction make any sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, I mean, I, I kept thinking of that bit in Inferno when Dante starts, you know, kicking a dead guy who's asked for compassion because Dante recognizes who he is and what he's done, mm-hmm. and Virgil basically high fives him. Uh, because in that moment, what you're recognizing is that Dante now sees this genuinely evil person with a genuinely evil disposition of soul being rightly punished for the evil that he is responsible for. And at that moment, um, the compassion that he asked for would not be right. And that Dante's actually developing a a sense of morality that is more closely aligned with God's justice. Um, he's not willing to excuse everything simply out of pity. Um, hmm. That 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 that's actually a moment of of moral development in Dante. Uh, that's fascinating because the way that I read that passage, David, mm-hmm. is that Virgil and Dante are now so close to Satan that they've been somehow infected by the spirit of betrayal. Interesting. And that they start to think it a good thing to betray your neighbor so long as you can claim some kind of moral high ground the way that Brutus and Cassius do. Interesting. But, I mean, I guess that, you know, since we're so deep into the episode, we probably shouldn't uh, debate that right now. But I do think, listeners, that, uh, Mm. you know, if you ever wondered whether the three of us always read the same text the same way, of course, if you listen to our show, you know that ain't the case. Uh, But but here's one very central and very important interpretation of a scene of Dante where David and I take it in very different directions. Uh, I'm with David, by the way. I, I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about the scene. Um, it's actually in the Blood River of the Violent. Yeah. Um, oh, okay, okay. I thought you were talking about something much, much further down. Uh, I was, I was. I thought that's what I, I thought you were talking about when he starts, uh, when he promises to uh, take the ice off of the sinner's eyes. No, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the one where the the dude cries to crawl into the boat, and. Dante recognizes him as actually having been a kind of horrible monster who just butchered a whole bunch of people. Oh, and see, that's interesting, because I yeah. would read that as Dante actually indulging his own wrath at that point. Ah, okay. So, again, I, I will, <laughs> <laughs> maybe someday we'll do that as an episode, but we are uh, on past the hour mark right now, so listeners, uh, if you want us to uh, put on the gloves and have that fight... Let us know, and uh, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com is the place to do that. Well, Michael, we are here at the end. I want to take it around the horn and let each of us suggest a narrative or two that stands to shape the public imagination in the realms of your choosing. So Nussbaum discusses, among others, Sophocles and Ralph Ellison and Walt Whitman, 
which is a group that decidedly expands the category of narrative. So what other narratives in that broad sense stand to enrich our public lives? I'm going to recommend two books I haven't read, <laughs> but which I've heard plenty about and I think work this way. Uh, the first is Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me. Oh, that's which, a good uh, book. Yeah, I, I, it's sitting on my shelf, but I haven't read it. it it's, um, a, it's, it's got deep, deep flaws, but it's a really good book irrespective. And I suspect what it'll do is, is if you read it, it'll it'll build empathy for a group of people whom uh, I think a lot of conservative white Christians are skeptical of, hmm. uh, which to some extent is the identity politics uh, we've been talking about. Um, and the other one is J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy, hmm. which our, our sister podcast, City of Man, did a, a whole episode about, which is very interesting. Another hated group, a deplorable group. The, the kind of white working class Trump voter. It'll it'll it gives you a, a a narrative in which you understand what brought them to that point. Um, so those are those are the two narratives I think might be necessary for today's society. Although once again I have read neither of them, so take it with a grain of salt. David, I'm going to go fictional, and I'm going to and I'm going to not even hang out in the 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 literature section of the bookstore. Um, Dorothy Sayers, Lord Peter Whimsey Mysteries. Because uh, in most of them, if not all of them, there is a strong move, uh, not only on the part of the novelist, but on the part of the, the detective protagonist within the novel to, in some sense, inhabit... Um, sympathize with, see the perspective of uh, the criminal. Um, often in in gut-wrenching ways. Uh, and this is, this, is, this is interesting in mysteries. A lot of mysteries um, just presented as here is a puzzle and hooray, we've gotten the clues and now we can solve the mystery and that wasn't that entertaining. Uh, something that, that Sayers often does in the Lord Peter Whimsey novels is refuse to let that be the end of the process but actually follow uh, follow the, the ch- follow the court case um, follow the trial follow it through to the end um, along with the protagonist who must deal with the fact that even though he's a dilettante who, who enjoys solving puzzles uh, if he succeeds that means someone hangs mm-hmm. and uh that that continued um, attempt to uh, pre- present the murderer not just as the solution to a problem but as a person is is something that I think Sayers does really really well. Um, Murder must advertise is an excellent one on this point. The very first Lord Peter Whimsey novel, whose body is an excellent one on this point. Uh, Gaudy Knight, set in a women's college in Oxford, uh, is. Uh, is really excellent on this. Um, so, yeah, those are those are good, I think, for building moral imaginations. I'm going to recommend a... I'm not even sure what to call Kobo Abe, uh, other than a novelist I've come to love greatly, uh, but his novel, The Face of Another, hmm. um, puts you into the consciousness of a character who is at the same time unavoidably a victim of the world and also unavoidably a, a wretch 
uh, as far as his own depraved desires. Hmm. Uh, I'm not going to get any more concrete than that just because it's a book that relies on some weird plot moves. Uh, but Kobo Abe as a novelist, he's a 20th century Japanese novelist, I should go ahead and say that, uh, really, kind of like I was saying earlier about Tom Wolfe, has a mastery of character that allows him to get you inside of a character that you know you should hate, hmm. uh, and that if you were Dante, you'd be kicking him back into the river of blood, <laughs> and yet puts you in a frame of mind where you're rooting for that character. Uh, so, you know, the face of another is where I'd start with Kobo Abe. I mean, the box man is also a masterful tale as is the woman in the dunes. Uh, he's oh, just, I love an op- that movie too. I've never seen the movie of that one. I, I keep meaning to, and I've never gotten around to it, but, uh, Abe is one who, like I said, really does kind of expand your imagination not to tell you that, you know, these people aren't as bad as you think they are, but to say they're actually worse than you think you than you think they are, but uh you should love them anyway. Hmm. <laughs> so that's gonna be the wrap up of uh today's conversation. Uh what's up for next week, Michael? We're gonna talk about Robin Hood, and in particular we're gonna talk about three film versions of Robin Hood. The Errol Flynn Adventures of Robin Hood, the Kevin Costner Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and because I couldn't get it, I couldn't do this without it, the uh, the 1973 Disney Robin Hood. Yay! All right. Well, listeners, until then, you can find us on ChristianHumanist.org on the web. You can find us on Facebook. You can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. The Christian Humanist Podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. Amberly Copeland is our intern. And in behalf of David Grubbs and Michael Farmer, I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. <laughs>